Welcome, everyone, to episode 156 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and we're back from our summer break. On this week's episode, we're talking about the long-awaited reboot-slash-sequel to the classic horror film Candyman. With me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good, Scott. As you would expect for me coming back from a summer break, I'm very sunburnt, Um I was at the lake on Friday with my office. We uh, nice. took the day off and had a office lake day, um, and it was very fun. Um, but despite reapplying sunscreen four times, you know, as I always say, for for me, it's it's basically damage control more than it is prevention. Um, and I'm not sure how well I controlled the damage. I think the worst of it is that on my forehead, I had my hat on backwards for most of the day. And so there's just like a white line in the middle of my forehead where, um, you know, like the back part of my cap was. Um, but your neck was better. So protected. that was. Yeah, that that is true. However, my shoulders are actually really bad. I've been a little bit uncomfortable sleeping because I sleep on my Ooh. side. And so like right on my shoulder. So I have to like t- twist to a particular angle where I'm not like right on my shoulder because it. It stings a little bit, but you know what are you gonna do? It was still a fun time, and uh, yeah. Again, I uh, people wonder why I don't go outside that much. This is a uh, case in point right here. You're, but you're sitting closer to your window than you used to, so I feel like you're like you're feeling the pull of outside. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I, I have this window right here though. I'm gonna show you um that I like. This is my big window. It's pretty much always closed. Like. Um, <laughs> I, I will occasionally go sit out there on the porch because I have a chair out there, but um, no, I pretty much always keep it closed. I, uh, not, yeah, the, the the less of the sun that I can have, you know, yeah, flooding into my apartment, the better because it yeah. just reminds me of pain. <laughs> you sl- slowly descend into into vampire state, Scott Harvey. We'll get there one day. That'll actually be the final episode of our podcast where you just fully transcend into I mean, vampire. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, that'd be some good content to go out on, I guess. Hey, Tom Cruise and uh, Brad Pitt did it, so why can't I? Uh, facts, that's true. You know, I I was on vacation for about nine days. So like, that's I, the real reason why we why we took a summer break was not your lake days, <laughs> shockingly, but it was more yeah. that I was out of town for for nine days and was outside a lot. And I thought that I was going to be sunburned, and it, it has settled a little bit. But I had a very red nose when I when I came back from vacation and had the just the start of a sunglasses tan. Which is like still you can like still kind of tell, uh, but mm. now I think it's like mostly, mostly hidden, which is a relief because on the last day my mom was making fun of me for it, and I was like, well, that's probably <laughs> there. That probably checks out. But then came back, yeah. avoided the hur- the hurricane up here, so that was nice. And now we're back watching movies and stuff. Yeah, not that we ever really stopped, but you know, uh, it's always nice to be back and chatting. We have a uh, crowded fall and winter slate year to come. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it, I think, in part two of the episode, uh, at least some of the streaming stuff. But of course, we have plenty of things in theaters as well, much like the movie we're discussing today. Absolutely. So I guess with that, why don't we just go ahead 
and jump right in. As I already alluded to, today's main topic of conversation is the long-awaited, maybe for some, maybe not for others, supernatural slasher sequel to the 1992 film of the same name, Candyman. Directed this time by Nia DaCosta and starring Yahya Abdul-Mateen II in the lead role, 2021's Candyman picks up several decades after the original story. The original story being an enterprising young graduate student named Helen Lyle discovering the urban legend of Candyman as a part of her dissertation, only to be driven mad by, the dis- by that discovery and ensuing events involving many throats slashed, a kidnapped infant, and a bonfire. Abdul Mateen plays Anthony, a modern visual artist in Chicago, who lives with his girlfriend and art gallery director, Brianna Cartwright, played by Tiana Paris. One evening when Brianna's brother, Troy, played by Nathan Stewart Jarrett, tells Anthony and Brianna that very urban legend of Helen Lyle's alleged killing spree in the early 1990s, Anthony soon becomes obsessed with this story, seeking out more information from local laundrette William Burke, played by Coleman Domingo. William tells Anthony even more about that legend, explaining the source of Helen Lyle's madness as Candyman. And Anthony ultimately uses these stories as inspiration for his next exhibit, daring his viewers to summon Candyman, who, if you say his name into a mirror five times, apparently appears in the mirror and kills you. Scott did this long-awaited horror sequel in the vein of recent projects like Halloween strike similar success, or is this revival of a long-dormant urban legend ultimately a mistake, just like Anthony's art exhibit? Yeah, Scott, I mean, I've been looking forward to this one since we first heard about it. I I have seen the original Candyman. I am a fan of the movie, definitely. I think it's one of the best horror movies from the 90s. Um and, you know, I, it, even in the 92 version, right, they they explored some interesting themes about racism and gentrification and sort of um, the way that maybe white academic society like uh, exploits black culture for their own, you know, gain. Um, and so when I heard that Jordan Peele was attached to this project, he's a producer and a co-writer in this, on this movie. Um, I was like, great, like this, this will be a chance to explore some of those ideas even further. And, you know, it, as we have grown accustomed to seeing in horror movies in recent years, I think they're just, they've been able to be even more open about that than they were back then. Um, and Jordan Peele obviously is kind of waving the flag for that with the two, uh, films that he himself has directed. Um, and I have to say, unfortunately, the the social commentary part of the this film is is where I think it's a little bit of a letdown. I think uh, the dialogue is pretty on the nose. Um, you know, it's pretty clear what this movie is kind of trying to be about. And it's, you know, similar things to what the first movie was trying to be about. I think there's also a sort of added layer of, you know, you mentioned Anthony being an artist, the sort of way that black tragedies are converted into art is it you know is it a good thing is it a bad thing um what is you know the ultimate effect of that um which is an interesting idea i don't think they really get into it um enough for my liking uh but the the commentary just becomes a really it's hard to explain because it's like it, it i feel like the movie telegraphs pretty early on where the commentary is going um but by the time we get there in the third act of the film, it's very confusing. And you're like, even, even though it's like not, even though it kind of ends up where you are kind of expecting it to end up, um, 
you're you're kind of confused about how and why we got there like how and why we got to the point that we got to at the end even if you know again it was expected the where we end up in the movie um it's hard it's a little vague but you know i don't want to get into spoilers quite yet but yeah um i think however the the strong part of the movie is definitely the style and nia da costa's direction i would say um i think the scare sequences and kill sequences are actually very effective and um, have some great camera work, um, you know, that it elevates it above your traditional mainstream studio horror movie, which this is. Um, the score is very good. I forget who the composer is, but he definitely heavily echoes um, Philip Glass's score from the original Candyman, which is one of the uh, best horror scores ever, in my opinion. Robert A.A. Um, a. Lowe. Yeah, well, he definitely relies on a lot of the, you know, motifs from Philip Glass's original score to great effect, I think. Um, and so I was, you know, it's the movie breezes by. It's only 90 minutes long. Um, but maybe that's actually to its detriment a little bit, uh, because, again, I think some of these themes could have been a, a bit more fleshed out, um, you know, if 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 we had more time and maybe like what I'm talking about, the issue with the ending, maybe a lot of that comes from the fact that it is a little bit rushed all of a sudden um i don't necessarily dislike the way that the movie ties into the original candy man like i like that um you know you mentioned halloween 2018 you know like halloween is a franchise that just constantly retconning itself and um you know i believe halloween 2018 was a sequel di direct sequel was supposed to be a direct sequel to the original halloween just, just like this movie right i don't know i mean i don't know if it retcons the other candy man movies but this is supposed That's to be true. a direct there sequel are... to the original it's true. There are Candyman sequels as well. Um, but yeah, um, but I like I like that they like are actually being trying to be, you know, pretty faithful to the um, to the original Candyman down yeah. to sort of the backstories of these characters. I don't want to say more than that, even though I'm not really sure whether one reveal that happens is meant to be a spoiler or not, because, again, like it, if I it's been a couple of years since I've seen the original Candyman, if I had seen it more recently, um, it may have been less of like a reveal to me, I guess. I think if I'm you're saying. familiar with with the original, because I, I mean, I hadn't I didn't know anything yeah. about the original. Like I literally just read about the original prepping for the podcast. And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. if I knew about this, then like I feel like the big spoilers or whatever wouldn't even have been spoilers. Like if I'd watched the movie before. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that's probably true. It's just like I said, it's just been a couple of years for me. Yeah, so yeah. I, I meant like recently. can't exactly remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are things that I like about it's a real mixed bag because there are things that I definitely like about it. Again, I like the aesthetics of it. It's very aesthetically satisfying for a horror movie. Um, I think like the, you know, setting is interesting. I think the performances are good. Um, I like Candyman as a villain, um, as a horror villain, as a, you know, slasher. But I just think that this movie was missing that extra layer of incisive commentary. You can see the the strings of what they were trying to do. Um, but I just don't feel like they, they really, um, there's, there's really enough meat on the movie's bones, um, or that it's really saying anything, all that original. And again, the, the dialogue does get pretty on the nose at times. Uh, this isn't have, this doesn't have to do with the social commentary, but I felt like it kind of, um, summed up accurately the on the nose feel of a lot of the dialogue is that there's a character who wears a joy division shirt, um, 
the banjo division and later uses the phrase love will tear us apart and the her boyfriend is like we get it you like joy division which is i found just to be a hilarious thing because love will tear us apart is easily the most famous joy division song and even if you don't know anything about joy division or aren't a fan of joy division at all um you know the like that um you could easily be a fan of that song. So like saying that phrase in a, in a sentence doesn't indicate that you're a Joy Division fan. Furthermore, when you add in the fact that this is like a youngish girl who like is wearing a Joy Division shirt, I just felt like it, obviously it wasn't intentional, but it, it, it was a, it was a commentary on like people, you know, people of that age who often will wear like a Ramones shirt or something, but only know like one or two Ramones songs, you know, like, are you, um, are you sure it was intentional? Because honestly, that was one thing about this movie is like, is part of this movie satire? Like I couldn't, I couldn't tell. Yeah, I don't know. The, the, the tone maybe is a little bit all over the place, but uh, yeah. I don't think that that moment was intended to be to be satirical. But it came off that way. And again, I think it speaks to the the on the nose um, yeah. feel that you know. Okay, it's one thing if she's wearing a Joy Division shirt, fine, no big deal. But then the fact that she number one that she uses the phrase "love will tear us apart," like wink, wink. And then double wink that the guy then has to point out, oh, hey, that's a Joy Division song, as if we didn't all already know that. Um, so, yeah, I just found that kind of um, indicative of a lot of the movie's issues when it comes to dialogue. There's a Fiona Apple needle drop later on that really doesn't work either, um, despite the fact that I absolutely love the song. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those, those are just some of the little things. Again, we'll probably get into the details. But overall, I would say the movie is a disappointment because I think with Jordan Peele's name attached to it, you would expect um, something meatier, like I said, something like he has given us with um, with Get Out and Us. Um, but it's not a complete failure, certainly. Again, that I didn't, you know, the movie the movie goes by quickly. I wasn't bored. And it is, you know, the, the act action sequences, the set pieces, so to speak are very effective, I think, and bode well for Nia DaCosta's future as a director, which, of course, we know more about because she's going to be directing a Marvel film. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, Scott, honestly, I, I feel like we are the most on the same page about a movie in, in a while. Not that we've been, like, super <laughs> discordant with, with many of our reviews recently, but this was a real head-scratcher for me because I, like you with Jordan Peele, it's like, you know, the one thing that I think is, like, a surefire bet is that, like, the writing in this is going to be pretty good based off of us and get out and you know, his upcoming, his next upcoming movie, which is just titled, isn't it just no, or something like that. I think it's, I yeah. think it's or, yeah, nope. or nope. nope. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's nope. Um, and, and I, and I'm just, I was really surprised by, in fact, I think what I ultimately got was the inverse of what I expected that the movie was a sure is a surefire bet in production quality. I think Nia Costa had a really clear vision of what she wanted from this and how she was going to bring Candyman forward three decades, essentially, and was able to do that with really effective scenes. And whether it's, you know, some combination, I'm sure of prosthetics and CGI to create these set pieces that you're talking about and building tension, I think in, in meaningful and meaningful ways in certain sequences. But man, I, I thought it was just, it set it, it's script and it's narrative really set in this like weird position where I thought it was like just narratively obtuse like I had absolutely like I, it was very clear what was going on in the movie but no idea why it was happening whatsoever <laughs> especially in the finale 
uh, like the last half hour. Just absolutely no idea why things were happening. Yeah. After sitting on it, like I think I understand most of it, but like while you're watching it, yeah, it's it gets very muddled. Like you I think said. you understand what the what the deal is with why things happen in the finale the way that they do? I guess we'll, we'll get, see. We'll get but, to yeah. it. <laughs> I'm completely lost. Maybe you can help me out. Um, but then, like, thematically, I just found it so on the nose. Like, I didn't find there to be any subtlety whatsoever. And it's not that Jordan Peele is known necessarily for subtlety. But certainly, I think nuance is something that you could definitely say about things like Get Out and and Us. Um, potentially even bordering on profound if you're big, if you're a bigger fan of those movies. I didn't think that there was anything profound about what this movie was talking about. Um, maybe that's because of my particular background as what am I now? 20, 26 years old and in college, like comment commentaries and, and conversations about these things are like much more common than, you know, I don't know your average, like 40 to 45 year old who probably went and saw this movie is having. So maybe it was more profound to them, but I, I didn't find anything particularly profound about the themes of yeah. this film. Yeah, real quick on that point. Like, this is just always the the conundrum, I think, with this type of thing is like, yes, we feel like the movie should be more profound. But to the average audience, and I, like, it's a prob I probably sound a little stuck, stuck up or condescending saying this, right? Yeah. But just different experiences. Like, to the, yeah, to the, to the people who are not as engaged with, you know, progressive dialogue, I guess, as we are. Yeah. Um, do you need something that is this on the nose, right, to get the point across to these people to like, do we really just need to strip it down to your essentials? Like on, on some level, it might be a success for, you know, the the what the themes that it's trying to advocate for might come across successfully to. Um, well, here's my response to that. You know, so I would say I would say, yes, I think that is right. The thing is, is that I think because the tone of the movie is all over the place and because I think this movie actually can't decide what it wants to be at the end of the day. I think you lose, like, not only do I did I find the movie on the nose, I don't think that it's done enough to actually really penetrate through to the people who might be less familiar with those types of conversations. Because I think in the last 30 minutes, man, like, so much stuff is happening in the last 15, 20, 30 minutes that I think you, like, lose a lot of the, like, thematic, like, the thematic threads that have gone through to that point. I think that they're set up, you know, fairly well at the beginning and then, like, it, it just sort of takes a backseat to, like, the narrative of it all and everything that's happening with some of the supporting characters who end up being really important uh, towards towards the end. And, and I, I think it was just a little bit confusing. And I do think that the ultimate, like, I mean, I guess I'll put aside my question of what, whether it's even interesting, like the themes are even interesting. I, I think that they are. They just seem very basic to me. And ultimately, like, not executed well, even in their basicness. And I, I feel like that that's where I got caught. I think the performances are are pretty good and the characters are subpar is actually what I think I'd end up landing on, um, which, again, I think kind of fits the 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 I guess the story I've been telling already is where I think that it's the production of it is quite good. But the narrative of it is is lackluster. But that's kind of where I landed at a high level. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to respond to there before we jump into some of the topics. No, not really. Again, I think you said it. We're on the same page. We're, we're pretty much on the same page with this one. It, um, yeah, you know, aesthetically pleasing. But the themes come across like a sledgehammer at times, but then get obfuscated. It's, it's very difficult to explain unless you've seen the movie. It really is. 
Yeah, I think it's something that, I mean, I was, I mean, granted, I'm reading like critic reviews, right? I'm not reading like audience reviews and stuff like that. But it, it seemed like a lot of people were feeling that way coming out of the movie, like just kind of felt like it was a little bit all over the place. Um, I guess on the last point, before we do jump into the performances, I think one, one of the reasons, so thinking more about this and thinking about the statue, the, one of the reasons why I feel like there might be more of this movie that's satire than, than intentional is because maybe that's what Jordan Peele is adding to the script. I don't think that he's adding this sort of like deep nuanced layering of commentary around, you know, race relations. And he's known for being satirical otherwise. Yeah. So I wonder if there is an element of that in this. I mean, let's be honest here for a second, though, because my reaction after seeing this is how much do we really think Jordan Peele had to do with the screenplay for this? Do I mean, we he's, think he's, the main, his he's the main credit on the screenplay. But do we think that is may, maybe him saying, hey, here's an artist I support in Nia DaCosta. I'm going to do what I can to boost the, you know, profile of her film, of this remake of, you know, he produced it, right? He probably was integral in getting this made. Um, and so I'm going to, you know, give it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, know, he was the I'm name getting a screen screen that revived credit. the project. I mean, his name revived the project. Like right. it was like this thing was that, in development yeah, hell for a decade. And then his name got attached to it in 2018. And that's what I'm saying. I just feel like the writing doesn't necessarily feel like it's coming from Jordan Peele. Maybe there are, are small flashes of it, but um, I'd be surprised if he really had very much to do with the screenplay, with writing the screenplay for this movie. And, um, you know, it, I, I feel like it's probably more his name. He is attaching his name in order to, again, boost um, you know, that this type of horror movie that he would make, right? Like, this is mm -hmm. the you know, it has the feel of a movie that he would make, um, just not with the same craft or, you know, it, craft is there in some elements, just not in yeah. the same, you know, the themes aren't as refined. I mean, this movie has been in development for, like I was saying, like at least since 2009, from what I could tell. So there, there might have very well already been a script that existed. And I don't know how much they drew from for that versus they just scrapped it and wrote a new one. I think the original intention of this movie was to be a, maybe even to be a prequel. Um, so is Clyde think, Barker like ever attached to this at all? Because I mean, you know, oh, no, I don't think so. Brains behind Candyman, so yeah, I, I, I don't believe so. But yeah, it's it, it's unclear to me. I think I mean, Nita Costa. We haven't maybe I haven't said, and this is the point you were making. Like this, she also is a screenwriting credit on this film, as well as Win Rosenfeld, who I believe is one of Jordan Peele's producing partners. I think she's she or he. I'm not actually sure. I guess is part of Monkey Paw Productions, which is Jordan Peele's production company. Um. But yeah, no, I think that it, it is signal boosting, right? I mean, that is what the whole point of attaching your name from a production perspective. I think that he was in this movie, though, before before Nia DaCosta even was this. So I don't know if the order of the order of events there quite checks out. But I think the point is, is that. And I think the key question here is like, how much was Jordan Peele really involved with the movie? I don't know. I think that he might have been fairly involved. I don't know if it's to the extent that he had a major role in writing the screenplay. But I think uh, it is an interesting question, nevertheless. But thinking of people who are attached to this, once upon a time, Lakeith Stanfield was actually rumored to be playing the role that eventually Yahya Abdul-Mateen II uh, ends up playing here in Anthony. But Scott, forget Lakeith Stanfield. I just thought that was a cool fact as I was reading up on this. What did you think of Yahya Abdul-Mateen's performance? I mean, we know him probably best from what the limited series Watchmen uh, from a couple of years back. That's probably the thing that pop culture-wise, he's... His best known for, unless I'm forgetting something really obvious. Yeah, I mean, he was in Trial of the Chicago Seven last year, but obviously, I, you know, yeah. Doctor Manhattan is a bigger role than that. But that, and I mean, he's in the movie for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, pretty, mm -hmm. pretty limited role. He definitely makes an impact in those 20 minutes. But yeah. oh, totally agree. Yeah, 100. But Scott, what, what did you think of his role here as Anthony McCoy? 
I mean, I, look, I, I love Keith Stanfield as much as the next guy, but um, I'm not sure he could have done this any better. Like, I think this is the best performance in the movie for sure for me from from Yaya Abdul Mateen. I I thought he was actually very believable and the eeriness of the development of his character. Like, he's very unsettling. He's a little bit unlikable, which I think is uh, is an interesting direction to take the char- character in. Um but just the the way that he like is so quickly converted by all of this Candyman stuff and becomes just kind of a shell of his former self. Like, you know, we get some early scenes just kind of seeing him, um, you know, how he is normally around his girlfriend and, um, you know, her brother and all that, which by the way, her brother, oof, that character. Um, but I, uh, and but then after that, obviously, you know, he gets involved in the Candyman thing and it just kind of hollows him out. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, th- I think I think he does that effectively, like the way he's trying to convert this into art and like some of the anger that comes out, you know, when he just is just like, um, you know, obsessed and really just like consumed by, um, you know, this legend and um, what he feels it can bring to his art that has been lacking, um, you know, in the past. Uh, or, you know, for the past couple of years, it seems to be implied. Um, and, you know, I, I think I, I believed his development over the course of the movie. And um, again, I think his int- the intensity that he brings is very effective. Um, so I like I like the performance. I think um, it is the standout for me here. I, I like that he's getting a leading role. Again, we've mentioned a couple things there. Even Watchmen, you know, he had a big role, but it was still it wasn't the lead. Um, and certainly trial of the Chicago seven, I think could have used a little bit more of him, um, in his role. But, um, I think he proves that he is a leading man here. Um, like I said, I I don't know that anyone could have played the role better. There may be some issues with the character down the stretch, but I don't really take issue with any aspects of his performance. I think, um, he does a good, you know, he, he, he echoes some of, what Virginia Madsen was able to do in the original Candyman as, you know, the per- person uncovering all of this and um, ultimately um, being supernaturally sort of affected um, in a way that, you know, pushes him, her slash him away from everyone around them. Um, and so I thought it was a, an effective performance. Yeah. I mean, I was a, I, I, I guess I probably saw him and I mean, he is a very minor role in us. I believe, which is probably the first thing that I saw him in, but I mean, really took off in magnitude for me when I saw him in Watchmen, thought it was a really strong, impactful 30 minutes that he had in Trial of the Chicago 7, as we're mentioning. And I think this further cements sort of the almost the combination of those two things, not that he's a lead in Watchmen, but showing that he's able to take these really, I think, diverse performances in terms of what he's bringing to the table in the roles and what he's being asked to do and really pushing that into the forefront of the film here in Candyman and showing that, to your point, he can lead a movie. And I think that he is a really commanding presence on screen while also showing, I think, really strong breadth and versatility of what he's able to do here as Anthony sort of starts out as this maybe somewhat insecure, but at least outwardly confident, you know, artist who it becomes clear is struggling with his art and and producing new work and is full of rage to maybe to some extent or at the the very least frustration with the art community of what he, of what he feels like is expected of him. And then how that ultimately he descends fully into sort of madness, right? And this whole Candyman story. 
I think there's a lot of range on display in that. And I found his sort of almost terrified nature as he realizes later on what is happening and how he is descending in these sort of moments of like self-realization um, or self-reflection. I found it to be really powerful stuff in terms of how he was able, like where he went from when he didn't believe in Candyman, for example, towards the beginning of the film, when he's jokingly saying the name into the mirror with his wife, or sorry, his girlfriend, um, played by Tiana Paris, to the end where she's going to prove him wrong, that Candyman doesn't exist, and he's throwing stuff at mirrors and breaking them and just being a, you know, a terrifying individual. And I found that sort of transformation to be really well done by him. I'm on the same page again with you as no qualms with the performance. I'm, I mean, and of the characters, I don't know if I have too many qualms with this character. Again, I'm just, I have no idea what's happened at the end of this movie um, and why it's happened. But I mean, I do think that a lot of the end of this movie is out of his control though. I think is part of the reason why I take less exception to his character. Um, I mean, I guess slight spoilers, but the, I mean, his character has like just fully entered a fugue state, basically, um, in the final act of this movie. Like, but he, he's, I think this is something that you were even saying. Catatonic, you know, yeah. He's catatonic. He's like a shell of a human at this point. Um, he doesn't really feel like he has any sort of autonomy whatsoever anymore. Um, and so I, I have less problem with that character, maybe, maybe some of the, narrative machinations around the character but less problems with that character itself and have nothing but praise for the performance i think it's really strong and i'm excited to see you know if he's playing the rumor is he's like maybe playing some sort of like relative of morpheus and the matrix resurrections later this year i don't know if it'll be a completely original character or if it'll be something familiar but i'm really excited to see what he brings to that to that world yeah i didn't realize that that uh that's an interesting connection, but um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be excited to see whatever he does next. Uh, I think again, because he's a leading man here. Well, the good news is Scott is that uh, he will be in uh, the Aquaman sequel as the villain, Black Manta, which I know you're excited about. Oh yeah, I mean, the first one was just a modern classic. So I mean, cheers to that last movie that made a billion dollars. No, I guess that was that was 20, 2018. That was a long time ago. Never mind. Well, that movie was yeah. 2018. Good Lord. Okay. We were, we were all a, a lot younger then. <laughs> facts. Age facts. Jason Momoa was a lot younger than too, probably. Scott, there are yeah. a bunch of members of the supporting cast. We can avoid uh, Nathan Stewart, Jarrett or whatever. <laughs> the Troy's Troy's character. Uh, the Troy's yeah, actors. Just, I'll just say like a very stereotypical character. That was what bothered yeah. me. Like he's, he's, you know, yeah. he's her, he's her gay brother, basically. And it just kind of plays into all the stereotypes of a gay supporting character in a horror movie that's kind of what it boiled down to for me well no he doesn't scott because he doesn't die spoilers <laughs> i guess that's true <laughs> yeah. but, but this, movie, else... this movie is this movie is you know constantly resisting convention in that way because yeah. every character in the movie is black <laughs> <laughs> you know they're all they're they're the ones who always die in, uh, in horror yeah. movies so it's going it's going to a place right now all right scott supporting performances I think so. We've, we've crossed Nathan Stewart Jarrett off the list. So that more or less leaves Tiana Paris as Brianna and Coleman Domingo as William Burke. There's other people down far down the list of the cast. I and mean, we could talk about Tony Todd, who Tony Todd. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess who plays who plays Sherman? Michael Hargrove. Um, Vanessa Williams, right? As she plays uh, his mom and one's mother. Yeah, that's true. But who sticks out to you? 
I mean, it's really only Coleman Domingo, I think, that makes any kind of impact of these people, unfortunately. I mean, he's, you know, he's someone that we are constantly talking about because he's been in yeah. a lot of movies here recently. He's been very good in a lot of stuff recently. Um, I can't remember whether he still has anything else left for the year, but... Euphoria season two? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, we just saw him in, in Zola. He was quite good at that. Um, the Euphoria special from earlier this year. I guess that was this year. I don't know if it was last year. I don't know what years are anymore. Um, what, so what, else has he been in, what else has he been in besides Zola this year? That's it, right? I thought there, I thought there was something. Oh, else. shoot. Maybe he was, I'm just thinking he was about in Without Euphoria. Remorse. He was had a very yeah, minor course, role yeah. in Without Remorse. That's right. He was the past. He was in it for like, yeah. I knew we had <laughs> talked about him at least. Yeah. yeah. Um, that movie. Wow. There's a movie called The God we Committee that movie. that's coming out this year okay. with Kelsey Grammer, okay. Julia Stiles, and Coleman Domingo. Kelsey Grammer in this economy. Um, yeah, apparently. yeah, but he's a strong, he's a very strong presence. I was saying to you beforehand, Scott, that he has one of the best movie voices, one of the best voices of any actor who's working right now. Just like, uh, it's soulful. You, know, you just want to like close your eyes. It's just like silky, you know, like, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other examples of actors who have, I mean, I guess Morgan Freeman is the obvious example. But, I mean, what urban, um, urban legend do you want Coleman Domingo to, to read to you in his voice? Yeah, no, truly, though, that it's it's perfect for this kind of movie, right, where like so much of it is based off of the mythology and like, you know, the Candyman is passed down, you know, like it's an anecdotal type type thing. Um, and so there are multiple times when he is telling the story of, for, you know, he tells about Sherman, whatever his name is, the, the story, yeah. that story early on. And then he talks about Daniel Robitaille, who is the actual Candyman that Tony Todd plays in the original movie. But mm -hmm. um but yeah, I mean, I just don't like where his character goes. Like, I, I can't really fault the performance because, um, again, I think he has a very vibrant screen presence. And um, I wanted, you know, I just wanted more of him. There's there's a long stretch where he's not really in the movie. And I was like, OK, when's he going to come back? Like, back. When are they, they yeah. going to go back and talk to him again? Um, and then I just don't think the movie really does him justice in the third act. Um, even though, again, I, th I think I finally got to a point of where I understand his character's actions i just think well, let's it do just it let's, of, let's just go ahead and go nowhere. for it let's let's take the full spoiler gloves off although we already said that his character died um what's going on with this guy explain explain his motivations to me i mean it seems like so he's obviously he he obviously is very affected by the sherman thing that happens like you know he feels guilt when he was a kid yeah. when he was a kid yeah um and I think that, you know, he talks about how Candyman is meant to be sort of um, an, an invention, basically, just this sort of like boogeyman that is um, created by, I mean, the implication seems to be by like white people yep. um, to sort of take the responsibility for, you know, the killings, to, for, for killings, for deaths, for murders, whatever, that in fact white culture is you know responsible for and police brutality obviously comes into this and plays a big role and so i think his motivation in the end again yeah it's a little bit muddled but i think he is obviously trying to turn anthony into the new candy man because i think he wants the candy man legend to continue right and to serve as a reminder of you know the black bodies that are you know killed by um you know what like i was saying white culture white people maybe it's the police maybe it's you know these sort of like oppressive institutions like the art world right like the 
white art critic, the white lady art critic is um, just this kind of insufferable character in the movie that ends up getting killed. Um, and, you know, the guy that he talked, even the guy that he talks to early on about, you know, how he needs to have a new piece um, makes some kind of weird comments about like, oh, you need to use your history, right? You need to use your, um, you know, tap into your history, use your, use your, yeah. um, you know, your story, man, to yeah. inspire your art. Um, yeah, exploitative, exactly. So I think, I think his goal is to, you know, keep Candyman alive, but he keeps Brianna alive, right? He keeps Tayana Paris's character alive as sort of the witness to what Candyman is, right? So that um, maybe the Candyman narrative can be reframed to get at the truth of the actual matter, right? Which is, again, not that there is some supernatural being really out there killing people, but that this is a fictitious creation that stands in for, um, you know, again, all the black bodies that are lost to sort of oppressive institutions that are run by white people. And, you know, the way that he does this is by basically killing Anthony and turning him into the new Candyman, like reviving him as a new Candyman. I, again, I don't know exactly how that part all works, but I think the idea is that Anthony well, I think, and I think Brianna, it's, the goal is to make him like a real life Candyman, right? Like Candyman yeah. in like throughout the movie, right, is is this supernatural figure who appears in the mirror and cannot be seen in, you know, in front of you without, without the use of these mirrors, right? Leads to a bunch of great shots. We didn't really talk about that, but like the cinematography is great. Love good mirror shot, whatever. But like, he is like manifesting somehow, some way unexplained, doesn't make any sense. Anthony into like the real life Candyman. Right. And what is the, what is the one action that we see Anthony take like when he becomes a real Candyman, well, he like kills a bunch of white police officers. Brutally, um, brutally kills them. Yeah. And so I think, again, you, you can have some like moral questions about the, the, the direction that that chooses to go. But I think that um, ultimately he's, like you said, he's trying to create this sort of real Candyman as a reminder, as like a, a way to sort of reframe the Candyman narrative again around what the truth I think of it has always been, which is that, this is really about the white people who would exploit our culture and our history for their own gain. That's how I see it. Yeah, but I agree with you. It's very muddled and it's not something that I, you know, that I, I was totally following while I was watching it in real time. It was kind of just something that, that I had to sit on a little bit, but yeah, I mean, that's even my best interpretation. Yeah. Even in listening to that interpretation right now, I'm not even sure that I fully, I fully see it thinking back about the movie. I think there are parts, but, I think it, maybe maybe that is maybe that is what it maybe is. Maybe you don't see it again. Maybe you don't see it, but I do think that is the intent. Yeah. But my so what I was going to say though is that let's say that even is the intent, right? That like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Narrative like thematically though, like wouldn't the whole point? I mean, I feel like if you're like I, I guess I still just don't get this Coleman Domingo's character's motivations. Maybe because my head isn't like fully wrapped around properly, like the whole you know the the historical use of Candyman because like ultimately like what you see on the screen or like what I'm working from is that like he feels guilt for having Sherman killed essentially you know through like likely through police brutality I think the implication is that all the police storm down there and like kill him on the spot at the beginning of the movie yeah no I mean it it, and, it, it, it comes right back around right it, it repeats itself like they they yeah. come back in at the end of the movie to like arrest uh 
Anthony and like, but they shoot at him immediately. They, immediately, they're like, "Put your hands up!" You hear the gunshots or whatever. But of course, he doesn't die because he's now become this supernatural thing. being. Yeah. yeah. Um. But I guess for me, like, I can read this as this is Coleman Domingo's way of like feeling like he has washed his hands of the blood of Sherman by the movie. I think that's a really weak arc. But that's like the only one that can like make sense to me. Um, and I shouldn't say that it's weak. I should say that it's like display like it is it is written in a weak way. And if that is like the true intentions and then the, like then there's maybe all this stuff that you're talking about that might be the real motivations and whatnot. But I just think that the film does a really poor job of getting that across. Maybe I'm just being like really obtuse and, and stupid about it. But like I just have a really hard time getting that reading out of out of the film and maybe because it's so frantic at the end of the movie and it doesn't give you enough time to really sit with some of the stuff that that this character of William Burke is delivering which is Coleman Domingo's character maybe it needs an extra 10 15 20 minutes or whatever rather than essentially three scenes one in the church one inside you know the building when the cops arrive and then obviously the end of the movie when he kills all the cops but yeah, I just I didn't get that out of this. And even when you say it now, I'm having a hard time connecting the dots, even though I believe it's totally possible that that is the reading. Yeah, no, uh, look, I, I am fully on board with your your comment that this is a weakness of the film. I, I totally agree that it's it's hard to follow at the end. And this is like the second week in a row, because the night house, the night house, I think, actually has an ending that is even harder to follow than than uh, I read the plot description of this movie. This movie. I was like, Do I want to watch this movie? The Nighthouse, or yeah, yeah, yeah. The Nighthouse is a much, much better film than this is. Um, I, I definitely recommend seeing it, but it's the second week in a row where I went to see a horror movie, and the ending, I was like side eyeing, like, do I understand exactly what happened here? Um, and I felt that way think, watching Reminiscence. Yeah, well, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't gone down that rabbit hole yet, fortunately, but. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it doesn't come across strongly, which is weird because the rest of the movie is so strong in what it is trying to convey. I mean, like, you know, again, yeah. early on, they're explaining um, what gentrification is, right? Like, they just come out and they're like, oh, let's just, you know, Webster's Dictionary. Like, basically, this, this first scene where they're at the apartment um, with, you know, her brother and his new boyfriend. Yeah, that's um, it's weak writing. And they just come out and sort of explain. I mentioned, so I mean, like everything with the, the white lady art critic feels very on oh the nose. God. And to, straight, down to the point, I mentioned, straight out of Velvet Buzzsaw. <laughs> I mentioned the uh the needle drop earlier, but like when she goes into her off or when they go when Anthony goes to her apartment, yeah, they are playing Shamika by Fiona Apple, which is if you're not familiar, is basically a song uh, that Fiona Apple wrote about Fiona Apple, who's a white artist, wrote about a black girl that she went to school with when she was young. And that was a big transformational moment in her life when this um, girl, Shamika, who was also a musical artist, listened to Fiona Apple's music and said, oh, I think you have potential. And the hook of the song is Shamika said I had potential. Um, so the the idea of like, again, it's a little the the white, white, you know, it's exploiting the black. Yeah. is, But I think the Fiona Apple song is much more nuanced than that. I, mean, I think it's a fantastic song, but um, but again, if if you under if you know that song, when you hear that 
if you don't know the song, it's not going to mean anything to you, right? So it's just pointless. If you do know the song, then you're, you know, as soon as you hear that playing, it's like a total eye roll moment, like, because it's just, yeah, again, they're just sledgehammering home the point. I will say that one of my favorite parts, though, was the way that that scene ends with her. Yeah. They're getting killed, but the the way that yeah. the cam- camera shows that, like panning back from the window to show, like was I was like, oh yeah, that's awesome. Um, that was one of my favorite shots in the movie, easily. Agreed. That was a that was a. I was actually about to say that if you didn't, um, on your mm-hmm. last thought there on that. Yeah, look, I think that we probably that's probably like a good place to to leave the sort of narrative discussion on, and that I feel a little bit lost at sea with it. Maybe I need to rewatch it. I probably won't um, to get the most out of it. But I will say, and I think because we we haven't maybe even focused on this enough, in my opinion, is the production value of this is is really high. I think that even though I found thematically the final 20 to 30 minutes really difficult to comprehend and tie together, I think what was actually physically happening on the screen was extremely well made. I thought that the final scene where she's where Brianna is in the police car and you're getting this sort of like, you know, rotating shot around this car, everything that's happening outside with the bees and um, with, you know, the, this version, the Yaya Abdul-Mateen's version of Candyman having like fully come to come to life. I think that is an extremely strong, strongly produced scene. Um, the score is really really coming through effectively in this moment. Um, the cinematography really works for what's happening because it's it's this, like we've spent so much time looking through, like into mirrors to try to see Candyman and where he's at in relation to the characters that we're seeing on the screen. And that's not, and then you, like it quickly becomes apparent that's, that's not, you know, the mirror is no longer the obstacle through which to see Candyman. You can see him in real life now. And then the bees, it, all of that just works really well. I think the production value of this film is really high. Yeah. And it makes you understand like, uh, you know, in otherwise, like, you know, we'd look at this kind of lukewarm film that we're both kind of look lukewarm on and be like, is this a director that we really want, you know, taking over the MC, an MCU film in the future? Like this isn't somebody like Chloe Zhao or Destin Daniel Cretton, for example, where we're like, Oh, we're big fans of their, you know, work. Yeah. But the promise is clearly there, even if the ultimate product does not pan out as well as like the films of those people who I just mentioned, some of the films of them. Yeah, and, and I can only assume that Nia DaCosta will not be writing the Marvels. I, like I don't I can't even think of a Marvel movie where the director wrote the wrote the screenplay. I don't think that and happens. I still haven't seen Little Woods yet either, which I really need to because I was looking forward to it when it came out. And for some reason, I've just never gotten around to it. But that was her first film, of course. Yeah. And I mean, she's got some pretty good actresses in that in that in that film with Lily James and. Um, oh, Tessa shoot. Thompson. Tessa Thompson. Yes. I was going to say Tarika Thompson. I knew that wasn't right. I don't know why I was thinking Tarika. That's weird. Yeah. So I think that with that, unless there's anything else you want to add, Scott, should we wrap it up? Uh, yeah, let's wrap it up before one of us accidentally says Candyman another time, because I think we're getting close to the the quota. Uh, yeah, I was concerned earlier with Joy Division, if that was going to like spawn some sort of weird creature behind <laughs> one of us. And, we're going to spawn, what's his name? Ian Curtis, I think is the guy from <laughs> Joy Division. I think he's dead. <laughs> exactly. All right. Favorite scene or moment from Andy Man? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess another sequence that I really like is um, in the art gallery when Joy Division and her boyfriend get killed. Um, again, very good use of of mirrors and like yeah. lighting in the scene as well. Um, yeah. And this is like the first time when we really see Candyman go ham. Um, so I, I thought that that was, it, I mean, it, it was, it was shocking. It had the right amount of shock value. Just like, um, you know, you're expecting something to happen, but you don't know exactly what. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, again, the, the composition of the scene, the framing of all the shots and everything was effective. Yeah, you took it right out of my mouth, Scott. So screw you. That's that. That was absolutely my favorite moment. It, it was that perfect. I mean, for me, is I'm not as big of a of a fan of these sort of horror slasher type movies, and so I'm the kind of person who, you know, my eyes are like darting on and off the screen in these types of moments because of the tension. And I think it, this is sort of the height of that for me, much more so than the bathroom scene later on, which I thought was. I mean, for I mean, we're talking about the film being like feeling like it's a little compressed and need to be stretched out. They could have removed that scene entirely and just put something else in that would have yeah. I mean, the, that's just like narrative. Very weird, like callback to this random girl who is just walking through the gallery right during the yeah um, d exhibition scene yeah. again, mm -hmm. right before these people get killed, and just like looks at his you know mirror piece there in the the gallery. Mm -hmm. and you know that's really all there is to it she just like looks at it and then for some reason that they decided to bring her back into um you know this bathroom scene that really doesn't seem to serve much purpose other than just to give us another you know stylish kill sequence yeah i mean i guess it's supposed to to show the extent to which his his mistake at creating this piece of art to I don't know, call attention back to Candyman is it was a mistake, right? Um, yeah. But I think that that time, that five to six minutes or whatever it was, could have been really reinvested in, in more meaningful ways to the end of the movie. And again, maybe there's some some sort of, uh, and I'm, I'm giving it way too much credit here because I don't think this is really <laughs> there. But again, the whole idea about white people exploiting black history and black art, um, yeah. the fact that, you know, the piece is called Say My Name, which mm -hmm. obviously, you know, echoes police brutality and George Floyd and all of that stuff, um, which is maybe yeah. it's some extra piece on these, you know, white girls trying to appropriate the Say My Name movement, um, you know, for for themselves and consequences come because of that. I, I don't know. Again, I'm just kind of spitballing here thought. based on what I think the movie is about in general. Wouldn't be George Floyd, but George Floyd wasn't the first part or, you know, the first incident of that. Happening. Oh, yeah. It goes way, way back further than that, of course. Yeah. That's just the first yeah. name that came to mind. Yeah. Um, look, you say that, that you don't think that's related. I think it might be. I think that's fair. Uh, it could definitely be that. I, again, I don't think that really adds narratively to the movie too much. No. Um, I think, again, it could have been reinvested in something that, that made the final piece more coherent or the final act more coherent. But I think it's very well possible that that, that, is, that is what they were going for with that. Um, but yeah, my favorite scene is that, is that, art, is that art gallery scene. I, I'm not going to sit here and lie that something else was. That was definitely my favorite scene as well. For all the reasons that I think I've made it clear earlier that I like this movie so much is because of the production value, because of the mirror shots, because of the way things are framed in the score, et cetera. Because to, especially to me, right, not having not seen any other Candyman movie, 
Like I know that's <laughs> I know some some bodies are going to hit the floor here, but I think that this was a, a really great introduction to the brutality of Candyman as well. Um, so, go watch yeah. go watch the original. I highly recommend the original. It's definitely better than this. Um, yeah, I, I think it's well done. Well, Scott, exactly how good is this movie? Out of 10, what are you giving 2021's Candyman? I think it's slightly above average. I'm going to give it a 6.0. Um, I think, you know, I'm not going to rehash what we said, but I think it's we've made it clear where the movie works, where the movie doesn't. Um, it is it is disappointing. It is frustrating, ultimately, though, because I think this is the type of horror, this, like, folk horror type thing that I really, you know, could really get into with this like all this mythology and history of the central beast but i just feel like they they squandered it a little bit um and the movie never really follows through on the potential unlike fiona apple who did follow through on the potential that uh shamika saw so 6.0 yeah scott i said earlier that we were on the same page and uh our score is gonna tell the tale here 6.0 as well for me average movie in, in my opinion and um but one of those weird average movies that is like really strong in one department, really weak in another. Yeah. Um, I'm glad so shakes out. I'm glad Jay isn't here to give it a six as well, because then we would have the the number of the beast there with three sixes. But let's be honest, Jay probably would have like echoed our uh, comments and then given it like an eight. So <laughs> now that live and let die is the only film that has done worse than six point oh or rise of Skywalker. I was gonna say hopefully I mean, yeah, maybe Rise of Skywalker made the cut as well. But uh, mm. you know, I think at the time of this release, our next episode of the 007 Countdown is going to be the first Craig Bond film. So get excited about that. Well, I thought it was GoldenEye was next. Okay. GoldenEye, I believe, came out today as, okay. as, as we speak. Uh, the next one will be Casino Royale. So check out whether Jay get higher than a 6.0 over there on that. Uh, but we're not done yet. It sounds like I'm wrapping up this episode, but we're not, I promise. We'll be back after the break to talk about Netflix's uh, fall release calendar, which we got a huge update on. Just this past week, we'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break... The second part of today's podcast is going to be all about Netflix's fall slash holiday release schedule. Scott, we got a huge update for a bunch of release dates, which sadly I don't believe included your boy Richard Linklater's movie. Doesn't mean that it's not going to come out, but uh, no, it is. It is in fact already confirmed push to 2022. I was gonna, I was gonna make this same point that uh, this is like the second out of three years that we've done the most anticipated episode, where my number one movie has not come out in that particular year because I had Under the Silver Lake back in uh, 2018, which of course it did not come out then. Um, I think so, that technically tough, did come out in 2018, but just not widely. <laughs> yeah. Tough beat, tough, tough beat for for Harvey. I'm gonna have to just play it safe. I'm gonna, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I'm already locked and loaded that Killers of the Flower Moon will be my number one next next year, but we'll see. Not the Northman. Well, the Northman was also on my list for this year. Was the problem? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. but I told you when we recorded that podcast that the Northman was not going to be coming out this year. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you said yeah, that was the one you were most unsure about. But yeah, I mean, yeah. In, in hindsight, hindsight is always 2020. That's all I'll say. Yeah, that's probably fair. I mean, look, you can always you can always just pull a safe bet. Just pick every MCU movie and like Jurassic World next year is most anticipated. They'll definitely come out. Yeah. But Scott, there are some movies coming out 
not not gonna say that the these movies if we had known they were coming out would have made our most anticipated list necessarily we did know that some of these were coming others not but quite a, a heavy fall release schedule for netflix i am just gonna read out a bunch of movies scott and you can pick one from this list of one that you're most anticipated for netflix releases or you can pick something different if i don't mention it but scott just a quick overview here november 3rd that neo-western movie that we talked about a couple weeks ago with idris elba regina king lakeith stanfield jonathan majors there's some other names that i'm forgetting delroy lindo maybe one more uh called the harder they fall coming out november 3rd on netflix november 12th red notice uh swear to god this movie was going to come out two years ago but when i did more research apparently wasn't going to come out two years ago but uh gal gadot ryan reynolds Dwayne the rock johnson netflix spy-ish action movie i something big with lots of budget that's gonna be probably hollow uh november 19th uh lin-manuel miranda directed tick tick boom musical november 24th there's a halle berry movie called bruised which i believe is about her an mma her her being an mma fighter um december 1st this one i think might be one of the ones that you're excited about scott the power of the dog which is jane campion's film i think that did make your most anticipated list for this year, at the very least, your honorable mentions. It did. Okay, great. Uh, December 24th, Scott, a, a big one for me. Uh, Don't Look Up, which is the Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, I think it's Jesse Plemons. Yeah, Adam Adam McKay directed directed film. That's coming out Christmas Eve. And then December 31st, rounding out the year, is the Olivia Coleman uh, and a bunch of other people in this cast of Maggie Gyllenhaal's first directed movie, The Lost Daughter. Scott, so any of those... Are any of those the ones that grab the most attention of you, or is there one maybe that I didn't mention that is also one that you want to call out? No, I mean let's let's talk about how my list was a success in some regards. And True. two of these movies, I, I think Lost Daughter was just an honorable mention for me, but yeah. uh, it was an honorable mention for me. Well, they uh, watched yeah, that, that podcast one. and were like, "Well, we got to throw him a bone if we're taking L- Richard Linklater. We'll put we'll, it in the last we'll day it, of the year. We'll put it on the last day of the year, exactly." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So New Year's Eve, I will be celebrating by watching uh, Dakota Johnson and Jesse Buckley, uh, you know, doing things. But um, so that one I'm definitely excited for. Um, I'm considering reading the book before it comes out. I just don't know if I'll have the time. Um, And uh, and then, yeah, you mentioned the power of the dog. That was that actually did make my top five most anticipated. Um, Yeah. I think there was a trailer for it. Yeah, there was. And I yeah, it was it was it was it it looked strong. you know, big Western vibes. Uh, you got uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. In the uh, you got Thomas, yeah. Thomas and McKenzie. Um, you got Kirsten Dunst. Um, and yeah, you got Oscar winner Jane Campion behind the camera. Again, I don't think I've ever seen one of her films, but, um, you know, Academy Award winner. Um, very hyped. I do want to try to check out a couple of that. Maybe Bright Star, I think, seems like it might be up my alley. But um, so those couple, I will say we have a nice new Christmas tradition developing, though, which that last year on Christmas, I watched, you know, an absolute garbage fire called Wonder Woman 1984. This year on Christmas, we have a new Adam McKay movie coming out, which, uh, you know, I think we talked about it before. I have I have a little bit more reason to be optimistic about this one than than his last film. But um yeah, it may not be a happy Christmas again, is all I'm saying. Uh, the movies, you know, typically you think of good movies coming out at Christmas. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. We'll see. This one. Yeah, will, will it probably be three years be... in a row after you had to watch Little Women on Christmas? 
the year before? I know that was terrible. True, yeah, that definitely ruined my Christmas. Uh, yeah. I didn't actually watch that on Christmas Day, though. Oh, you, but, oh uh, that's right, you didn't. That's right, yeah. And and I I did actually watch it on Christmas Day though last year, so that that kind of like, you know, uh, yeah, cl- cl- cleansed me up some of the the stank of uh, of Wonder Woman 1984. Um, I think so I also watched that. If not Christmas, then New Year's eve for me last year i watched the one because it was that that and soul that came out at christmas and yeah i guess i picked the wrong one i think i watched soul the next day but um, that's a shame but yeah no scott i'm looking forward to these movies the harder they fall also sounds um you know really interesting um and yeah i I think it's going to be uh a good slate for netflix i hope some of them some of these i'll be able to catch in theaters like the power of the dog looks like it will probably be like a really gorgeous movie to look at um so i hope i can catch that one for sure um but i will most likely be watching most if not all of these um even if one of them is directed by adam mckay yeah kate blanchett meryl streep Jaimesh patel jonah hill mark rylance tyler perry timothy chalamet these are all people who are also in don't look up um which is the adam mckay movie so crazy cast uh i assume most of these people are going to be in the movie for like five minutes at most but bunch of white li- bunch of white liberals. Adam McKay will love that. Yeah, hi Mesh Patel, noted white liberal. <laughs> yeah, you pick the one name out of those people that you just Tyler named. Perry. I can keep going, man, if you want me to. That's true. You did say Tyler Perry. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I joke. Most of these people are, are white liberal Hollywood people for sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess if I had to throw one out, I think I think Don't Look Up would, would have to be it, right? I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, two of my favorite actors, full stop in Hollywood and the fact that Jennifer Lawrence hasn't really done anything for a couple years now. I mean, I guess the last thing we saw her in was, was dark Phoenix a couple years ago, which she was killed off in pretty quickly in that movie. Cause she didn't want to be in that movie. I don't think um, th- she was supposed to be in star, some, some other movie um, like in the, I think it was H is it in the A 24 movie? I don't even remember some small film. Yeah. She, yeah, she was, she was linked to an A 24 film. I forget what it was called, but yeah, I think he got yeah. pushed to next year. Probably. Yeah, I was going to say that that thing was supposed to be, I think, her first film back. And I think production wise was her first film back. But gosh, what is it called? Red, White and Water. That's what it's called. Um, right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I was excited for that. I think last year, I think that was I think that made my list for 2020 as most anticipated. Uh, did not come out. <laughs> Still hasn't come out this year. So great track record as well for films getting released. I don't know why. So many movies have been delayed recently. Can't figure it out myself. But yeah, Don't Look Up, really exciting. And I think between that and The Harder They Fall, you know, a movie which I didn't even know about until a month ago when we talked about it on the podcast. And now that film is near the top of my list for movies that I'm excited about for the rest of the year. What happens with these Netflix movies? They're just like, you know, you don't hear anything about them. And then all of a sudden a trailer pops up and it's I mean, like, that this was, is coming out in three weeks. Here's a yeah. big movie. Yeah. I, I th- This wasn't a Netflix movie last year, but I mean, that basically was The Queen's Gambit. Like we hadn't even heard of that thing. Until like a trailer dropped a month before, like what until we this? saw that screenshot of Anya Taylor, of Anya smoking Taylor a Joy, cigarette, like, yeah. smoking, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is going to be the greatest thing ever." <laughs> yeah, and it turns out it, it lo and behold, it was in fact one of the greatest it, things it ever. It kind of was yeah. only only surpassed last year by normal people. Um, but look, I, crazy cr- crazy times on Netflix, just truly truly crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that I'm excited about both those movies. I'm excited about some of these other ones as well. To be fair, I'm. I'll only say this once and I'll never mention it on the podcast again because I know it upsets you, but I'm hoping to see two or three of these movies at the New York Film Festival in a month's time, which will be really exciting. And if not, then I do have the luxury also of 
<laughs> I do have the luxury also of having the Paris Theater, which is one of, is one of two the one of the two theaters that Netflix owns. You know, one here in New York, one in LA, to have these sort of repertory and um, screenings of their of their biggest films. So I do feel confident in my ability to see whichever ones of these that I want to in theaters, which is really exciting for me because one of the highlights of 2019 was getting to see things like Marriage Story and The Irishman in the local indie theaters in Boston. Um, because but do you the, have that the AMC High Point Eight, Scott? Do you do you have the AMC High Point Eight? Because uh, no, I don't know. Try not to be too jealous of me over here, but yeah, I do. Sorry, is that a drink? AMC High Point Eight? <laughs> is that with bourbon? Might, or... might as well be compared <laughs> to the theaters you're uh, you're listing off. But it's fine, you know. We're gonna make the most of it, Scott. I think that the the Paris is showing maybe Kate while you're here, which is the Mary Elizabeth Winstead Netflix movie. Coming out in oh a few weeks? yeah, absolutely. yeah. I'm sure. I'll I'll get us I'll get us ten tickets to that. We can go see it five times. Please, please. <laughs> while you're yeah. here, uh, uh, but otherwise, Scott, is there anything else you've been watching that you want to shout out here? I know you've been watching a lot of old stuff for for trivia matches recently, but any any other things new? I mean, you talked about the Night House earlier. Anything else? Finishing up Outer Banks season two. Uh, oh man, wild show. We had a, we had Scott. a wild Discord exchange. I feel like the other day yeah. about about this show. I have a. I've got a cup. I've got two episodes left. Um, okay. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't think I like it as much as season one. No. I do think like the the plot of it is starting to like run out of mileage a little bit. Like I think, like my my brother after he watched the season, the first thing he said to me was, "They need to be. They need to uh, stop after season three. And I was like, "Okay, that's kind of a weird thing." But now that I'm watching it, I'm like, "He's not. He's honestly not wrong." Because I just don't know how much more mileage they're going to be able to get out of this story. I mean, I'm sure they'll find some yeah. sort of you know, cliffhanger that changes everything at the end of the season. Again, I haven't finished it yet. So um, we'll see, but I don't know. I'm kind of sick of John B. If I'm being honest, like that's kind of the thing that's holding me back uh, from yeah. these last couple episodes. He's just kind of a, a toxic, toxic white male. Uh, not, not to, not to be all woke all of a sudden. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of uh, get, getting some strong vibes of that um, from from his character, but I'm sure he'll get a redemption arc in these last two episodes. We'll see. But it's it's a fun show. I'm I'm being too you know sniffy about it. It, it it's still a lot of fun. It's still delivered mostly what I wanted. Um, you know, I like that. You know, there's some adventure stuff going on that is was more satisfying than a uh, Jungle Cruise, for example. Um, yeah, look, I mean, Scott, the important thing to remember is that this kid is 16 years old <laughs> in the show. This kid is so young. It's easy to forget that because it's because <laughs> of Chase. 28 Stokes, year but, old man on the screen. But yeah, I know I'm, fi- I'm going to be finishing that up and then I'm going to be starting the White Lotus most likely because yeah. I hear a lot of good things about that. Seems like it'll probably be up my alley. Um, I think so. so we'll see. I'm try- trying to get back into to TV shows a little bit. Um, Tired of the ones results may vary. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I guess I am. I did watch. I did watch a 120 pluser last night. Though Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence, very good. Martin Scorsese, good director. Yeah, I mean, Outer Banks season two. I will say that I do think the strongest episodes in the in the entire season are episodes nine and ten. So I think you have that to look forward That's to. That's kind of how the first season was too, honestly. Yeah, and and the good news is is that you know cliffhanger to end a season on. I mean. I'm sure that they'll. I'm sure that they won't do that. I mean, there's no way that they'll put a cliffhanger at the end of the season to, okay, to set up well, another season. Well, now they season. definitely are going to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what I will say, not to not to ruin it too much for you, is that I think that I was like, oh well, they're really not going to put a cliffhanger at the end of the season. 
and then they did and i was and i will say the cliffhanger is extremely predictable as soon as it starts what like when the scene starts you're like oh man i know what this is gonna be um, oh boy okay yeah i mean look we can take guesses right now about what you think the cliffhanger is that word cameron is still alive that would be my guess i mean again mm -hmm. in keeping with the theme of no one is ever really dead um you don't really you never see his body or anything which is you know <laughs> big big red flag right there oh yeah definitely i mean look look i've i have lived the year that is 2021 and watched movies as soon as that boat exploded i'm like we have not seen his body there's no way he is dead um yeah i mean look scott all i'll say is that that's not the cliffhanger at the end of the season um and, I, and i'll leave it at that okay Pleasantly yeah. surprised. I, I feel like what I had just said made it really now, auspicious yeah. that that wasn't the cliffhanger at the end of the season. So I feel like I had to I had to like wipe that out. That that is not the cliffhanger at the end yeah. of the season. Um, but yeah, it's been you know it's been a busy two weeks. I've watched a uh, watched a bunch of movies the past couple weeks. I think the only new release to note is Reminiscence, which is the least joy directed Hugh Jackman film, uh, most recent HBO Max day and date release with theater. Absolute garbage movie just really bad one of the worst movies i've seen this year and is it's one of those films that is particularly infuriating and that it has a really great premise this whole premise of this like dystopic future where like miami is like flooded and people live in these like like basically these isolated cities and have to what you're saying survive. is it's the mortal engines of this year scott it Honestly, that's like not the worst comparison, to be honest. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll level with you there that that's actually not a bad comparison, I think, for what this film is. And God, just like everything about what they did with this movie, this like is just terrible, <laughs> like besides the production design. And yeah, oof, man, I don't I mean, all the performances are completely phoned in. Um, Hugh Jackman got a check. Rebecca Ferguson got a check. And I think that's tough to see. Say. At least a joy, really concerning. If that's the that with her making this movie, I mean, I haven't seen Westworld. I bounced off that pretty quick. It, I wasn't feeling it at the time when I first tried it out. I'm hoping to go back and try it again because I. It feels like you know what her and Jonathan Nolan, her partner, both in life and in you know creating and producing, it, they feel like stuff that would be and should be up my alley. You know, maybe it, it's the, it's the Nolan of it all. But man, I tell you, this just feel like a really cheap, cheap ass knockoff extension of Inception. I mean, just uh, terrible, terrible use of it. Um, Chris Nolan would have made a 10 times better movie with the exact same premise easily. Yeah, I don't doubt it. The trailers for for Reminiscence never really got me fully on board. So I don't think I'll be checking it out. I've only seen a couple of people praise it. And those are people <laughs> whose opinions I would not value. So. Yeah, that and I'll leave out. it at that. <laughs> yeah, that, that checks out. Other than that, you know, finishing up our the last movie in our 007 countdown, I watched Spectre. Um, so ready, ready to talk about that film. Ready for No Time to Die. Sam Mendes is great. Love Sam Mendes. I watched uh, way back ago, two weeks ago, I did watch uh, A League of Their Own, which was a fun watch. The Penny um, Marshall classic. Yeah, I really I really did enjoy that. Enjoy that film. I wasn't necessarily expecting to. Sports movies aren't always my bag. Um, and then the only other thing is Malice at the Palace. Scott, I watched that while I was on I vacation as, well, as yeah. well, which was well done. You know, as much as I'm not the biggest fan of sports films, always I think some some work better for me than others. 
am a big fan of sports documentaries. And so, you know, I watched Mouse at the Palace Cut, and I'm like, am I going to finally watch The Last Dance? Maybe. It's very good. And Netflix now, it seems like they're kind of going down their own 30 for 30 route because this um, Mouse yeah. at the Palace is meant to be like the first in like a, a you 30 know, again, 30 like series, anthology yeah. documentary series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about sports stuff so i mean it's a good start i'm um, alice at the palace you know as a defining event of our youth in sports i specifically remember the morning after it happened walk, waking up and uh, watching sports center even though i was only 10 years old or so um and i thought they they did a good job i was kind of hoping that there'd be a sequel that like gets at the uh the pistons players perspective because it was like all from the Indiana and Pacers perspective, which was kind of interesting. Just because Jermaine O'Neal uh, is the one who basically made it. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it was still it was still well done, and you know, give you gives you some new perspective on the incident, which is what you would hope for. You know, you don't just want to see a informational documentary about this thing we already know a lot about. Actually, one that's so heated. Um, yeah, like kind of unpleasant. Yeah, and I think that. I mean, it's going to be you're going to be really hard pressed to find like a a truly two sided dock of that that involves either side, because I think that there is there is a lot of investment in both sides of this in terms of, you know, people feeling that they're right. I mean, maybe maybe there's not anymore on the other side, but I mean, it was so skewed, it seemed like at the beginning of it all um, against these players, right against people like Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest. Artest, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, but yeah, Untold is that is that I believe Untold is the name of that anthology series that you're that you're referring mm-hmm. to there. So yeah, the, I saw the the advertisement I think or or uh, some sort of screenshot about what the next one is, but I'm forgetting already what the next one's going to be in the series. I think I saw it too, but I but yeah, no, this is a cool like thing that I can get on board with. Like HBO Max is also doing you know their version, which is Music Box, which is the music documentaries, and Bill Simmons is you know, running that. They already did the Woodstock 99 one. There's an Alanis Morissette one coming out pretty soon, I think. So this, these are the type of like documentary, you know, things I can get behind for sure. Like these um, specialized sort of anthologies. Cause I'm a big 30 for 30 fan as well. Yeah. And I mean, Mouse at the Palace, I don't know what the length of the other ones are going to be. I mean, this thing is just like a long episode of TV. Essentially. It's like 60, very reasonable. Yeah. 67 minutes, I think, or something like that. It's yeah. Crazy. I'm here for it. All right, Scott. That should do it. Where can people find you on Twitter and Letterboxd? Uh, I am at ScarbyDent on both. And I'm at Shelton2013 on both as well. You can also check out our podcast online at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. We'd love it if you checked our Patreon out. If you choose to support us, we'd really appreciate that. But if not, you can still find us on all your podcast services, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Anywhere you, you find your podcast, you should be able to get us as well. Where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed, subscribed, shared, It really helps us reach a broader audience. So we appreciate that too. And thank you so much for listening to us chat about Candyman today, as well as a bunch of other stuff we've been thinking about. We'll be back next week with a review of the next MCU film, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Until then, though, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.
man, do, do any black characters die in this movie? I think they might all be white who get killed in this movie. I think, I think you might be right, actually. Yeah. Because even in even in the uh, bathroom in the bathroom scene, it's the black girl in the stall who doesn't die. Who doesn't die? And the and the Asian girl leaves the bathroom before they finish saying Candyman, which I thought was hilarious. That was so funny. All right, I guess I'll give the movie some credit for that. Yeah, maybe yeah. they were making making a point there that I was going to say that actually might, that actually might be a thematic point that we've that we've that's, missed here. That's the most subtle aspect of the whole movie. Maybe. Yeah, no, no black bodies die in this movie. Yeah, is there what? Maybe there's one I'm forgetting, but like, Aki, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, the police officers definitely weren't black. I mean, okay, actually there is, but damn, I mean, Coleman Domingo dies. So, oh. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, you're right. But he, he kind of deserved it, though, right? Like, crazy man. I don't know. Is he dead? Did we see it? Are we sure? If we didn't yeah, see it, it didn't happen. Shot. He got shot by her, yeah. Yeah, but, like, do we know that he's dead? Scott, we've learned no, it this year. Guess, we learned I mean, in the year that it's 2021. If you don't see it, we did. If you don't, if you don't see it's, it, it didn't happen. It's impossible to know whether anyone is dead anymore in movies. I was feeling that the other day, actually. I, I forget what movie I was watching, but I'm like, Man, this person's like probably still alive in whatever movie comes next. Beth March is probably still alive uh, after Little Women. Who knows? Yeah, I mean maybe she's gonna come back when Greta in the sequel. Little Men, yeah. (laughs) Is that? I want to know. Is that Little Men? Wow, that's That's actually the sequel to Little Women. It is. Yeah, I know. I'd forgotten that, and that is. There's Little Men, and there's Joe's Boys. Joe's Boys. God, I feel. We can't we can't go down this road. We have to pull ourselves out of this rut that we're in right now. We so can always go down this road. Yeah. It's going into it's going, 